0: Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. It is not... My habit or custom from this pulpit to regularly address issues in the current cultural discourse But I do begin this morning Probably risky and I will not do this well because it's not in my notes But I feel compelled to just address all of that we are feeling and thinking about the recent events in Uvalde Coming just after the events in Laguna Woods Coming just after the events in Buffalo And the list could go on and on Complicated, difficult conversations. And if I say one thing, half of you will agree and say that is a wise man. And the other half of you will not come back to this church and say, I knew that preacher was a fool. So I will not venture proposals other than to say, I can tell you that as Christians, we know that our scriptures say that God cares almost above any group of people. God cares about children. God cares about the weak and the powerless and God cares about children and I know if there is to be any change in whatever way that is worked out because of what I see on both sides of whatever aisle the only change will have to be worked um, as a miracle because whatever we're doing now is not working And I don't say thoughts and prayers in some cliche, trite way to dismiss a real problem. There are policies that matter and actions that matter. But it seems that if we can't even hear each other, a good place to begin might be prayer. And when we come to the prayers of the people later on, I encourage you to, as we pray for these situations, that you join me and continue to join me as we pray. I probably didn't do that well, and I probably managed to offend somebody, but I'd rather offend somebody than not address at all the horrors that we continue to live with too frequently in this country. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. Acts chapter 16, that's what we're going to talk about today. Little Mr. Watkins here gave a fist bump fist pump here because he wants to hear about casting out demons, earthquakes, and um, really the most Avengers-like passage in the entire New Testament. But I want to begin by talking about a monk. Brother John Mathis was a retired stockbroker, a World War II veteran, a recovering alcoholic, and a monk in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And when I was in college, I was going through a rough patch, as they say, and I met Brother John, and he invited me to the monastery, which, little be known to me, was tucked away right next to the campus of my college. I had never seen it or known it was there. I'd grown up in the Episcopal Church. I'd wandered far in a land that was waste called Congregationalism. And. <laughs> Brother John invited me to come to the evening prayer service at the Society of St. John the Evangelist, this monastic order in the Episcopal Church. And I went in. It was dim. It was dark in this stone chapel. And the monks filed in in their dark habits. And if you have trouble visualizing it, you should picture the monks in Monty Python and the Holy Grail (laughs) walking in a line Dominus Requiem <laughs> except these monks did not hit themselves in the head but it was still it was that sort of very serious very pious very somber and whenever anybody's in church even a brilliantly lit relatively friendly church like this one you are anxious you're a little bit nervous am I on the right page am I saying the right words do I know what's happening am I allowed to be here so it was serious it was church And the monks walked in and they were serious because it was church and they were monks. We're all very serious there. Now it was the Easter season, soon after Easter. So in the center aisle of the chapel, there was a large ceramic basin that they used for the baptisms they just had for Easter. And it was still filled with the water of baptism. And as we were serious and the monks were serious and we're all filing in very seriously, as Brother John passed the basin of water, He took both hands, made a scoop, and just threw what felt like a bucket of water onto me. It was like being in the front row at a Gallagher show, or maybe at SeaWorld. I could not have been more surprised. God shows up in Surprises. In the book of Exodus, Moses is in the witness protection program in Midian, watching sheep. He's fallen far from the courts of Pharaoh, and God surprises him in a burning bush. Mary was engaged to Joe, not yet married, and an angel tells her she's going to have a child out of wedlock much scandal, and she's to name him Joshua, or as we know it, Jesus. She could not have been more surprised. God shows up in surprises. It's, It's what God does. God almost never shows up in a way we expect, according to the rules or the timing that we would prefer. And so when you are reading the scriptures, this is a little Bible reading tip and trick for you, because sometimes the Bible is a little bit, it's heavy going, it's thick, and how do we understand it? And Always look for the things that surprise you. And in Acts chapter 16, there are two incredibly surprising things, meaning people act in ways in that passage that no normal, sensible human being would act in those circumstances. So in the passage, Paul and Silas, these church planters, are in Philippi. And they are starting the church that will ultimately give us the letter to the Philippians and create the expansion of the message of Jesus in the world. And so they're in Philippi. They come across a young woman at the beginning of this passage who is uh, possessed by a spirit that she's an enslaved woman and her owners use her spiritual powers from this spirit to predict the future and make money from her. So she's enslaved, she's being exploited, and however, because of her insight, she, can, she knows that Paul and Silas are messengers of Jesus, and she keeps crying out about Jesus and everybody. Paul, it's maybe the only exorcism driven by annoyance. He just says, get out. And the spirit is out and she is set free. And of course, no good deed goes unpunished. And so the owners of this woman now having lost their moneymaker, they get angry and they trump up some charges that are false to get these people thrown into prison. Now, none of this so far is surprising. Exorcism, while it may be surprising to you, not surprising in the New Testament. A central point of Jesus's ministry still happens in the church today. Every diocese in the Episcopal Church has an exorcist whose identity is not known because that person then gets a lot of phone calls. (laughs) Because everybody's like, my dishwasher. Um, (laughs) But you cannot read the New Testament without seeing the reality of spiritual forces of evil in the world. And that was part of Jesus' ministry. It's part of the ministry of Paul and Silas. So they cast out this demon. Not a surprise. Also not a surprise that people in power get upset People in power who benefit from the exploitation of those who are weak and oppressed do not like it. As people say, when there's been oppression in a society, when you move towards equality and equity, the oppressors feel it as an injustice. And so these people who own this woman and her powers want to go back to the status quo. So they get Paul and Silas thrown in prison. Not a surprise. That is how the world works. Paul and Silas, humiliated, tortured, publicly beaten, imprisoned. Not a surprise. It's how the Roman Empire worked. It's still how many places work today. Silence those who cause trouble. But the surprises come when Paul and Silas are in prison because they behave... In a way that none of us would behave in two situations the first thing we read at midnight at midnight of the night they've been arrested and publicly flogged and stripped and beaten and thrown in jail at midnight and they we know that their wounds have not been addressed at all because later on the jailer takes care of them so they're covered in dried blood they are bruised they have been beaten they're in prison now you and I in that situation we would be moaning We would be rightfully complaining to our fellow prisoners about how unjustly we've all been treated. We might be banging on the bars, asking for somebody to let us go. We might be asking for our phone call. We might be trying to call our lawyer, but we would not, I'm fairly certain, be singing. Which is what these men are doing. And it's not like in Spaceballs. Remember Spaceballs? The Mel Brooks Star Wars parody movie, in which the Princess Leia character is in prison and she's singing, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. That's not the kind of singing. We get the sense here that it's the kind of joyful Christian hope of the resurrection kind of singing. They're praying and singing after experiencing such a setback in their ministry. Now, it's the prayer, I get that. I mean, I pray when I've gotten pulled over in her and I'm still bitter. <laughs> the signage should be way better. So I get praying in jail. But the singing, that is so a surprise. And the next real surprise, it's not the earthquake. God works through nature all the time. It's not that much of a surprise. But again, the surprise, now what would you do if you had been unjustly imprisoned? You are there, and then suddenly, in answer to your prayers, an earthquake causes a giant hole to open up in the wall and your chains to fall free. What do you do in that moment, my fellow rational human beings? Alan Jones got it right. You run. (laughs) You run. You Shawshank Redemption your way out of there (laughs) as fast as you can. And you get free. You don't look the gift horse in the mouth. You don't question or second guess. Well, this isn't totally legal. It's like, well, neither was your imprisonment. So you get out. But what happens here? So they know, they think about the jailer. They consider his life situation. He was asleep, so he's incompetent. All the prisoners have now escaped, he thinks. And he will now be subject under Roman law to capital punishment. And he wants to um, get ahead of that, sort of uh, to preserve his honor, a big deal in Roman culture, because he's failed. He's about to fall on his sword, and Paul says, hold up! Don't harm yourself! We're all still here. So Paul has managed not only to convince Silas to stay, but we're all still here because we want to make sure you don't get in trouble, because this wasn't your fault. And, of course, this guard, having been shown mercy, falls on his knees. What must I do to be saved? He gets baptized. They go down to the river. There's fried chicken and potato salad. And everybody comes to know the Lord. The surprise, again, these men in imprisoned, God has set them free, and they stick around to save the person who has imprisoned them, the person who's the representative of the system that's been unjust to them. They care more about him who has been on the opposite side than they do about themselves. This is bananas. This is the surprise. People who sing in jail and people who care about those who have been on the opposite side of them. So much so that they don't take advantage and put their own freedoms and rights first. They don't run out of the prison, but they care for the people around them. Even the ones they don't like or don't agree with. This is the very crazy thing about Christianity. And I want to talk about where that comes from. Where does this kind of crazy behavior, non-rational, none of us would do it. Where does this come from? Well, the answer, again, as you might not be surprised to hear, is Jesus. But it's not just Jesus. It's Jesus' prayer from John 17, the gospel reading you just heard, is answered. Jesus prays on the night he is about to be arrested for something he didn't do the night he's about to be betrayed by those closest to him the night that he's about to be crushed under the wheels of an unjust system that night Jesus prays and we get a piece of that prayer in John 17 and he prays that all of his followers would be one that we'd be united and we know that part of it but I think even more amazingly to be praying for people that are about to betray you and abandon you, he prays that they would know that they are loved. But not just sort of like kind of loved. God is love. That's sort of nice. We're used to that. He says twice, he says this in the passage, that the love that God the Father has for God the Son, that's the love that God the Father has for all of us. As I say it, I feel the lack of power in my own words to communicate that. The love that is in the Trinity, the love that has existed before the foundation of the world, before time and matter and space, a love that can never end, can never die, has always existed, is infinite boundless and unconditional, that love that constantly flows in and through the heart of God, that, without remainder, without exclusion, without division or diminishment or any sort of reduction, that love is the love that God has for each person in this room and each person on this planet. And none of us believe it because it's too good to be true because we're all so aware of how we've fallen short how we don't measure up of our many failures of our ongoing sin of our lack of prayer of our self-absorption of all these things of the systems we've built that hurt people and in which we take part and all of this we're so sure that God can't really love us but this is what Jesus says he prays because it is a miracle for you to get this because none of us believe it He prays that they would know that the love the Father has for the Son is the love that the Father has for all of us. And if you're like Paul, where you're trying to destroy the church, that's Paul's backstory. And that's when Jesus said, you're on my team. If you've been loved in the moment of your your lowest failure, if you're loved in that moment, if you're forgiven in that moment, that's when you begin to realize maybe this love is real. And if you begin to know that love is real, you might be the kind of person that will trust that that love will not let you go even when you're in jail, and so you might sing. You might begin to realize that that love is not just for you, but is also for your jailer, and you might stay and care for him. And you might be the kind of person when, like Paul, you're faced with an insurmountable problem, you might trust that God has not brought you this far to drop you now. This is Jesus' prayer. And the fact that Jesus prays it for us should mean a lot. The fact that we still don't believe it says a lot also about what Jesus is working with here. And it to me again points us back to what he does after he prays this prayer. Because we won't really believe it until we see, until we know. We won't really believe this love until it's demonstrated for us and jesus goes to demonstrate it on a cross Where he dies for the sins of the world, which sounds abstract, but For the sins of you and for the sins of me So that we would know And he rises again To know that our sins don't defeat him or hold him down But he actually has put them away forever and the forgiveness is real and the love is true The love of the Father for the Son is the love the Father has for each of you. As you come forward for communion, I'd like you to imagine Brother John right there by our baptismal font. A hologram, if you will. Or whoever represents the love of God to you in your life. And know, as you pass by to come to this table, imagine it full of water. And I know this is a little, you know, imagination's hard for grown-ups. I get it. But imagine it full of water. The waters of God's love. The cleansing, forgiving, resurrecting love of God. And see a crazy monk splashing each one of you with abandon. Water all over the floor. Slipping hazard. Very dangerous the reckless love of God poured forth with abandon and extravagance for you. And you'll come to this table, and you'll hear the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. That's all I got. I pray it lands, and I pray you come to know the love of God in Christ for each one of you, and that you receive it today and every day. Amen.